Hola, my friends, and Mary Litmus. In a climax, Hollywood itself lacks the ability to write Paul Manafort, the Russian-friendly former campaign manager of Donald Trump's presidential campaign, was found guilty on eight counts of fraud only minutes before the president's personal consigliere, Michael Cohen, pled guilty to eight counts of violating federal campaign finance laws. But most damningly, Cohen declared under oath that he broke campaign finance laws at the direction of a candidate, unless Mr. Cohn was consulting some up-and-coming congressional ingenues on the side. Mr. President, you might be in trouble. Between Manafort, Cohn, a deported Nazi, well done on that one by Trump, and the detained illegal immigrant killer of Molly Tibbetts, we have one drink that sums up the day pretty nicely. Adios, motherfuckers. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is the Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. If you've so much as checked your phone today, you'll need it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Political Pregame. Man, today's news story has been, or news stories, I should say, have been absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm so glad that we decided this day to record the podcast and at this timing because, man, things just broke like crazy between Cohen, between Manafort. Uh, It might all be going to shit. I don't know. Tiana, what's your take? So, obviously, the Manafort case has captured a lot of attention from the public. And it makes sense. I mean, Manafort himself openly was a pretty shady dude with his involvement in the Ukrainian elections, with the fact that from the get-go, he already seemed to have a lot of questionable financial ties that were confirmed today by the jury. However, I've suspected for at least the last few months that nothing with Manafort was really going to stick with regards to Trump. Yeah. Cohen, I think, was always the far more interesting character. I mean, he knows where all the bodies are buried. Cohen is the one who did all the dirty deeds. And the question leading into his his confession, essentially, was, did Trump know what he was doing or not? Did Trump basically say, fix it, and you handled the details? Or did he specifically say, issue a payment to Stormy Daniels? That now... Obviously, it's questionable in terms and, you know, Cohen has pled guilty in terms of they violated campaign finance laws. And, uh, and that's now he's saying that it was under President Trump's direction. Yeah, the specific quote was that he made the payments to the woman in court, quote, in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office and, quote, for the principal purpose of influencing the election for the president in 2016. Yeah, and Trump's best legal defense going into this would have been a know-nothing approach if he knew nothing. But now, if Cohen under oath is willing to say that Trump not only knew about the payments but encouraged them, Trump now could face subpoena by Mueller. And this puts him in very dangerous legal territory and sort of unexplored legal territory. So under the United States versus Nixon, it suggests that Trump can be subpoenaed. President Clinton was also subpoenaed, but that was during a civil case, not a criminal one. This one, if it does become a criminal case for Trump, uh, they can subpoena him. Whether or not a sitting president can be indicted remains open-ended. Uh, This is just not territory that we've been in before. When Nixon 
seemingly was going to face criminal charges, he resigned and obviously was pardoned by President Ford after. Trump, it's extremely unclear what would happen. Right now, I mean, from a political perspective, I do not think that a Republican majority would impeach President Trump. Um, This is just not the current makeup of the loyalty first Republican Party that has sort of taken hold in the country. But that being said, the midterms are coming up. I don't know if it would be wise for Democrats to run on impeaching Trump, however, because that could potentially galvanize not just Trump's base, but anyone who would rather have stability and would rather have Trump's judicial appointments and Trump in the executive office uh, that could galvanize them to come out and help the GOP. So it's a gamble regardless of what happens. But with regard specifically to the legal aspects of Cohen and Manafort, it is interesting that this started off as a investigation into Russian interference into our elections, and now it's culminating with campaign finance violations. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I agree with you. I don't believe that it's the best approach for Democrats to be waving this around as a campaign principle that they are going to pursue impeachment for Trump, I think the best thing Democrats can do is let this play out for themselves. I mean, we didn't really know where all of these indictments were going to lead, if there were even going to be any a couple months ago. And now look what we've seen. And that's from the FBI doing their work and different, you know, judiciary branches doing their work. And I don't think there's any room and any opportunity for the Democrats to touch this. I think you know, the verdicts speak for themselves and the truth will come out, hopefully. Uh, In regards to Trump even being able to be impeached or resigning as Nixon did, it's tough because I don't see Trump being impeached either, obviously, with Republican majorities. But then again, if he was facing criminal charges, I also don't see Trump as being the type of guy to resign. I think he is very bullheaded, obviously, and stubborn. And so if it's going to come to a point where either you resign or we press charges against you, I don't know what would really happen in that regard. I mean, this is someone who, from the get-go, let's just take a step back and think about how this all began. In 2004, Trump, who was married with a newborn baby at home, had a one-night stand with a porn star that he met the night of, had an affair with her. Uh, At the same time, he was in another extramarital affair with Karen McDougal, and before the election, asked his own personal fixer to make an in-kind contribution to the campaign by paying Stormy Daniels. And that is why we were, that's why we are at this place today. So, I know that soul-searching is not something that anyone in politics really cares about doing, especially right now when everyone's just so hung up on winning. And Democrats and Republicans alike are equally guilty of this. I think that there is no party that really has the moral high ground when it comes to win at all costs. But it is worth considering that every single aspect of this portion was unavoidable. You could theoretically say with Manafort, oh, Trump is not a political animal. He didn't know that Manafort had all this shady stuff going on. It just seems so much less damning, the Manafort conviction, than, than all of this cone business. I mean, 
realistically, political candidates make campaign finance law violations all the time. This happens frequently. And even John Edwards, who was running for the Democratic bid for president in 2008, he faced criminal charges for, through his campaign, basically paid off his mistress, Real Hunter. And he was facing prosecution, but I think the charges ultimately were dropped due to, like, politicking. Um, So this is not extremely uncommon territory, except for the fact that Trump is the president of the United States. He wasn't a candidate, which means that obviously he's a little bit more protected because he runs the executive branch. But it just raises the question of how avoidable was this? Yeah, of course. I mean, as you said, I'm paying far less attention to the Manafort indictments and the Manafort case than I am to the Cohen case because, as Tiana said, he knows where all the bodies lie. And if Cohen's claims that Trump explicitly demanded Cohen to make these payments are true and can be made true in a criminal court proceeding, then obviously that's very damning and we'll see where this goes. I mean, to me, it seems pretty credible because why would Trump's, you know, closest trusted ally and henchman all of a sudden turn against him unless there was pretty credible he knew his ass was on the line and there was pretty credible evidence against him so i mean we'll see what happens but i hope that a president isn't immune to criminal proceedings and that will be something that's decided amongst the judicial elites in this country and i hope it lacks partisanship and it only has you know the integrity and the future of the united states at its core in that in the root of that decision making I mean, all of this being said, everything about Trump was a response to the Clintons. You know, I, I don't think that Trump would have happened if Hillary, if if Biden had been running, I do not think Trump would have won. And I think that after Trump lost, there would have been some sort of return to normalcy because it would have been seen as ineffective. But I'm that not so Hillary- sure. I don't know. I think that, like, potentially that... It- that could be true. But then again, Trump is such a unique candidate and his base is so blindly loyal, more than we've ever seen in this country. Yes, but also his base has expanded since. I mean, when you think about it, voting for Trump was a big decision. There are lots of people I know who did not vote for Trump in the first time around and will probably do so now because a lot of the initial fixed costs of morally, pragmatically, thematically, of voting in Trump as president have already been paid. The idea that it's unprecedented, his lack of experience, the idea that it's unprecedented, his lack of political correctness, all that stuff, those are costs that have already been incurred. They're sunk costs. So it's less of a moral price to vote for Trump now, I think, in when it comes to the internal calculus of a lot of people. But I say the Clintons and not Hillary Clinton, because consider if Bill Clinton had just resigned after it came about, after it came to light that, first of all, all the affairs, a credible abuse of power when it came to the Lewinsky affair in particular, and then not that's excluding the credible accusations of sexual assault. But then on top of that, obstruction of justice, perjury under oath. If Bill Clinton had resigned, 
Trump would not be able to play the same defense because right now the defense that he can play is, and he's not saying this because he's denying that the Stormy Daniels thing even happened. He's saying it never happened. But implicitly, the trade-off is, well, Democrats had their time and this is the Republicans' time to shine when it comes to flagrant disregard for social norms and basic decency. I don't necessarily know if I buy that, though, because... In the last few election cycles, we've seen that after a two-term president, the American public likes the change candidate, likes to go past the typical norm, and likes to elect a candidate from the opposite party. We saw that when Bush was elected. He was uh, Sorry, we saw that when Obama was elected um, in wake of Bush's presidency. Obama was elected as the change candidate. And then we saw that with Trump being elected as well, because a lot of people viewed it as a continuation of Obama's presidency if Hillary was to be in office. And so at the end of the day, if it were Biden who ran against Trump in 2016, I know we're kind of getting a little off course here, but if it if it were to be Biden running against Trump, sure, maybe he would have had the popular vote, but so did Hillary. And the thing is, Trump's base, the people who are so loyally behind him and who are were so outraged with Democrats and just had so much exuberance for Trump are the people in the Electoral College states that are advantageous to to that win and to that victory. And so I don't think much would have changed in that regard. Uh, But I do think that Biden would have gone to Wisconsin. I mean, I'm saying I, I think that he would have. I think that Hillary ran an extremely cosmopolitan strategy that was very short-sighted and overestimated the cultural pull that Hollywood and the mainstream media has over the general population of this country. Yeah, 100%, so, but I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, so I, yeah. I can't really say for certain that Biden would have ran that differently, because in the past, that's been the strategy that's worked. But I mean, even Obama, fig- Obama had a good, Obama figured out how to build a coalition, and mind you, there were, what, 12 million Americans who voted at one point for Barack Obama and then for Donald Trump. Or, I 12 million sounds way too high, but I know it was in the millions. So the point being that I think that Biden understood that there were some people to keep who Trump was able to acquire that I think Biden would have kept. But before we speculate into oblivion and relitigate 2016, because apparently that's all we do now, not us well, it particularly. Feels like we're still but in like, 2016. Yeah, yeah, but. But I, I guess I just the only reason why I want to bring that up is there were so many choices that everyone could have made differently, so we were not in this position. That being said, I think that because the whole Russia, Russia, Russia thing had been so hyped up, and when you think about it, colluding with a foreign adversary to hack our democratic process is one is higher up on one of the worst things you can probably accuse a president of yeah and since there is still no smoking gun that has been found people are going to view that i I think that there will be a large portion of the country that will view this as so trump committed a campaign finance violation so what yeah and I'm, I'm, i'm not saying that's right but i'm saying from from a political perspective i think that democrats can consider it somewhat of a minor win but i wouldn't leverage that too much i just don't think that it can buy them that much yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it also goes back to the Fifth Avenue principle and that he could shoot someone on Fifth Ave in broad daylight. And realistically, no one who mattered in terms of no one who would be able to shift the electorate 
would actually give a crap. I mean, I think there are a few things that would. I think if an N-word tape actually did come out, I think that would. If the elevator tape came out, I think that would. Uh, but when it comes to just speculation, when it comes to, oh, Trump had another affair, or Trump committed this campaign finance infraction that literally half of all candidates who run dabble in. You know, I mean, campaigns are very, politics are dirty. People commit these violations all the time, probably in a less extreme way. I think catch and kill is something that's very unethical with regards to these stories and AMI. Um, but I think it's, a, I, I, I do think that that a notable portion of the base would still have a line, but I think you're correct that there is some part of the base that is intractable, that if an N-word tape came out, they wouldn't care. But I just don't think that that's the majority of them. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think if something was going to come out on Russia, if the smoking gun was to appear, it would have presented itself already. So for people who are on the side of impeach Trump, let's get Trump out of, out of office, I think the Michael Cohen thing should be encouraging. And for people who don't want Trump impeached, regardless of what he's done, I think those people should be potentially worried. And it's also... The other thing that I just can't get over is why Cohen was the person doing all this for Trump. Trump is still a powerful billionaire, and he was before he became president. He could have had anyone running this for him. Why, for someone who touts himself as being surrounded by all the best people, was was Cohen the one to be doing this? And was it just because better lawyers wouldn't commit such unethical acts? Well, I don't I think know. it's because they know Cohen's the kind of guy who, like, doesn't care about getting his hands dirty and, yeah, will commit the acts. And, and was a guy who's been by Trump's side for a number of years, knows the Trump organization, not from Trump being a political candidate, but also from Trump's, I, I imagine, within the Trump organization. I mean, there's a real reason why Trump didn't file um, or didn't make public his, his tax receipts or whatever. And... So Cohen knows the dirty dealings within the Trump organization. He's seen those. He has probably executed some of those. He has the legal mind to be able to execute what Trump would need done from a financial money laundering or campaign finance perspective. And so I think, obviously, that makes sense. He's the perfect fit. So, all right, between Manafort being found guilty and Cohen pleading guilty— I guess, what do you anticipate? So we just saw at least a portion of Trump's rally in West Virginia. What do you see Trump as, and he remained mum on the issue prior to before making remarks. I mean, unless if we've missed it in, you know, the 15 minutes we've been speaking. Um, and he, he just referred to the investigation as a witch hunt, emphasized that Russia was not involved, which to me makes sense because still nothing revealed today indicated any Russian involvement in the Trump campaign. But... He is capable of pardoning Manafort. He's obviously not going to pardon Cohn at this point. <laughs> but what do you see Trump is doing next? Do you think he will at least attempt to pardon Manafort? I don't think he'll pardon Manafort, um, at least not in the near future. I think if the Cohen trial didn't come to fruition and the allegations didn't arise then we might be talking about a different story if this was just a one-off thing with Manafort 
had seemingly no relation of credibility to Trump and no impending danger to Trump, then we might see him considering a pardon pretty soon after these indictments have come down on Manafort. But I think, if anything, Trump needs to get through this storm with the Cohen stuff. And if he does get through the storm, we might see you know him let Manafort sit in jail for a little while and then pardon him after the fact. But not right now. I don't think that should even be a priority for Trump now, considering what he's dealing with coming down the pipe. As a storm-adjacent point, uh, Stormy Daniels... No pun intended. <laughs> Stormy Daniels... Ugh, I don't even know how to describe him. I'm going to try and use fewer expletives in this podcast. Her attorney, Michael Avenetti, who has indicated interest in running for the Democratic ticket for president in, uh, or Democratic office... He was at. Oh, why does that not surprise me? He was, of course, at the VMAs last night, you know, uh, working on his celebrity. But I just do think it's funny that that so much of of the Cohen charges were unearthed by none other than the Wall Street Journal, which is funny because I will say liberals unfairly deride the Wall Street Journal as being too conservative because of its opinion page. But its reporting is obviously, despite the fact that it's owned by News Corp, is obviously extremely fair. Um,. But I think that uh, the Avenetti thing, the, all, all of these side characters that have come about in, in the Cone Diversion have really been the most interesting. The writers of this season of Trump have been quite creative. And you know what? The, the, the one thing that kind of makes me think Avenetti actually has a shot, because I was thinking about it, I'm like, Avenetti has no name recognition outside of people who are already very keyed into politics. Whereas Trump Absolutely. was able to run for office because he was already so famous. His name recognition was close to 100% before he became president. Or yeah, before he was he a household running. name. But I will say, Avenetti is the only member of the resistance crew I believe is actually having fun when he craps on Trump. Everyone else, it seems like it's so painful for them. Like, they don't understand the humor of it all. Avenatti almost seems to get that this is a humorous situation in many ways. Well, I think it's because he's used the situation to exacerbate it and capitalize off of it and for his own personal gain. And it's frustrating because, you know, I think Tiana and I discussed this earlier on a podcast when the Stormy Daniels allegations or the Stormy Daniels, I guess, you know, payoff first came out in the media. And this was in the height of the Me Too movement, although obviously we're still in the height of it now. Mm -hmm. But we discussed how should a consensual sexual relationship be used in this way when there are so many credible stories and allegations against people who have actually been victims of sexual sexual assault or sexual misconduct and all of those things. So I just, it, it frustrates me to an extent, the celebrity status that both Stormy and her lawyer have tried to make out of this. I understand um, the need to be able to publicize the fact that this could be a campaign finance violation. But other than that, I mean, she willingly engaged in sex with Donald Trump. It was immoral on Trump's end, for sure. But other than that, she knew Trump's situation and consensually agreed to this. And so it just frustrates me seeing Stormy Daniels and seeing her lawyer, although I'm a Democrat, 
see her lawyer be able to make such personal gains off of this. I think this is an issue with the American public um, in terms of campaign finance. It's an issue in terms of the law. But for them to be able to make celebrity status off of this, I think there's no place for that. I fully agree. And as sort of my final thought on this matter in particular, it speaks, I think, to just this intense... irony that plays out. I think in all things Trump, Trump is definitely a King Lear type figure where his own paranoias will get the best of him in the sense that if it came out that Trump had the affair with Stormy Daniels, do you really think that would have changed anything after the Access Hollywood tapes? No, absolutely not. He didn't have to do any of this. It could come out that he had 15 more affairs and paid off 15 more people in a legal manner and that wouldn't matter. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think the only thing... what Tian and I, when we were discussing uh, what to talk about on this podcast beforehand, I asked... I, I said to Tiana, um, she was talking about how it would be obviously bad if Trump was subpoenaed and forced to talk um, under oath. And I said, well, what would it matter? Trump's going to lie anyways. So if he's, if he's going to lie anyways whether it's under oath, he's already been doing it to the American people, he's going to stick to his guns. But Tana brought up a really great point in that she said that if there was credible evidence, he is also not smart enough to stick to his points and he would probably talk himself and into a circle and implicate himself through his words. So I think we'll see what, what happens, but obviously there's enough evidence, in my opinion, to be able to subpoena him. I mean, more rhetorically focused people than Trump have been caught in perjury traps. And even the president's greatest supporters, I hope, can realize that Trump's shortcoming, shortcoming might be his loquaciousness. Uh, but on that matter, I think that <laughs> it's worth just pointing out this was an insane day. So before we get back into the next insane thing, we're going to something a little bit less insane, but I think equally important. And that is uh, recent developments in the Me Too movement, uh, specifically in this case regarding Ozia Argento. To recap, Ozia Argento was one of the first sources willing to go on the record uh, with the New Yorkers Ronan Farrow alleging rape by Harvey Weinstein. And she's been heralded as a Me Too hero, obviously, for being able to come out and talk about it, uh, specifically with regards to the Weinstein allegations. But over the weekend, the New York Times broke the story that Argento paid almost $400,000 to Jimmy Bennett, a former co-star of hers, after he threatened to sue her due to a sexual encounter in 2013 when she was in her 30s and he was only 17 years old. In the state of California, this would constitute um, a statutory rape claim. And he has stood by the fact that that caused him enough emotional distress that it caused his his earnings to drop from in the millions of dollars annually to, I believe he said it was 60000 He said that it caused him distress. And mind you, um, when the New York Times first reached out to Ozzie Argento, she declined to comment. And today, she denied that she and Bennett, who had once played her son in a movie in 2004, so that makes this a little bit creepy, she, she categorically denied that they had a relationship. And the reason, or they had any sort of sexual encounter. And the reason why I think that this is worthy of talking about is less the story itself and more the backlash to the story. 
you have a lot of people, I think, more on the conservative side of the aisle claiming that this is the death of Me Too. This just demonstrates how hypocritical it is. If anything, in my opinion, this just indicates why Me Too is so necessary to point out that the abused can become abusers. Absolutely. I mean, I think the monopoly on hypocrisy doesn't belong to men. I think the Me Too movement isn't necessarily about women, although perhaps these instances, this, these type of things happen disproportionately to a larger amount to women, but it's about anyone who has been a victim of sexual assault, sexual misconduct, um, anything under that umbrella. And the fact is, in this case, it was a woman who, I mean, the allega- there are allegations at this point, but the accused story is against a woman who did these actions. And I think she should not go without due process or not go without, I guess, um, paying for that in a certain, in a certain regard, whether that's publicly or whether that's through criminal proceedings, just like how many men who have been taken down in the Me Too movement have had to, you know, face their consequences as well. And so the Me Too movement isn't meant to be sexist. It's just meant, meant to bring justice to the people who deserve it most. And so those responses that are saying that this is the end of the Me Too movement, I completely agree with you. I don't think those are credible at all. I think, if anything, this shows just the broad scope of the movement as a, as a whole. Yeah. And, I mean, I've been asked by many conservatives why, despite the fact that I criticize third-wave feminism frequently, why I've been largely supportive of the Me Too movement. And it's simply because I don't think that the Me Too movement is about gender tribalism. It is simply about acknowledging individual allegations of sexual misconduct, harassment, abuse, and assault, and employing a trust but verify standard, considering, all right, does someone have obvious financial motive, obvious political motive? Is their story consistent? And if they seem credible, taking those allegations more seriously than we have in the past. And I think a lot of our problem with when we talk about sexual misconduct, specifically when it comes to assault, we have an image of what a good victim is supposed to look like. A good victim is supposed to be virginal. A good victim is supposed to be docile. A good victim is supposed to exhibit the right kind of trauma. And I think that it's precisely stories like these that indicate why we need to restructure the way that we have these conversations. Um, If I, I was... When I read the New York Times story, it seemed pretty clear they did their due diligence in presenting a pretty reasonable case. I don't know why you would hand almost half a million dollars to someone for them threatening to sue you if you didn't do what they claimed to say that you did. I don't understand why you wouldn't do that. But then today, I became even more convinced when Ozzy Argento came out with a categorical denial that they had ever had a relationship. And then TMZ broke about an hour later text messages between her and Anthony Bourdain in which she said, it sounds like she was framing the story to Bourdain that they had had a consensual sexual encounter that was almost aggressive on his end, which is obviously inconsistent. So, I mean, the fact that there are inconsistencies in her story and none on his makes it seem fairly clear that she was an abuser. And to people pointing out 17-year-olds can, in a moral perspective, consent to sex, sure, I think that a 17-year-old can consent to sex with an 18-year-old, with a 19-year-old. Most states have a Romeo and Juliet stipulation where even if you're under the age of consent, as long as the person who you had the sexual encounter with is within two or three years of your own age, it's not considered statutory rape. This is someone, Jimmy Bennett, 
played her seven-year-old son in a movie, and they had a mother-son relationship. And the way that she just, the way that, that the story is described in this New York Times report makes it seem eerily close to what happened with Weinstein in the sense that these both happened in hotel rooms, both under the guise of something else. It was, um, she, Ozzy Argento, allegedly had uh, Jimmy Bennett's parrots leave. She gave him alcohol and then basically came onto him. So I, that to me seems clearly like some form of sexual mis- manipulation and misconduct. And that's, and, and I'd also like to point out, I know that I've seen a lot of people uh, criticizing Rose McGowan and, as being a hypocrite. Um, and a lot of the stories that have been writing about, she put out one tweet where she said, not all the facts are out yet. Be gentle. Most of these stories criticizing her fail or neglect to mention that her first tweet said, I am heartbroken and I stand for all victims. I only met Ozzy Argento 10 months ago and we bonded over both being assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. And today she tweeted out something quite funny, like, that wasn't a defense, you fucking morons. And I was just like, go Rose. Anyway, but she's, yeah. So I, that's, I just want to point out that there has been a lot of, I think, political motivation in terms of latching onto the story to disenfranchise Me Too's validity, when in my mind it shows, it demonstrates perfectly that men are capable, especially when there's an age disparity or a power disparity, men are capable of being victims of sexual misconduct. Absolutely. And also, abusers are capable are capable of being abused as well. Yeah. In the case of Asia. And so, what I hope is that with this claim... Obviously, I hope this claim is treated credibly, but I also hope that Ozzy's claim against Weinstein is not discredited as well. Yeah. Because just because she was an abuser does not make her immune to abuse from others. Yeah. And the New York Times broke another story last week when they were discussing that a feminist professor from NYU, Avital Rennell, was accused of sexual harassment and misconduct by a gay male student, Nimrod Reitman. And the the story itself was fairly complex because they were talking about what happens when a feminist is accused. And in my mind, the implicit thing is someone, a conservative, non-third-wave feminist, reading the story, it's obvious. It's, yeah, feminist is just about gender tribalism. It has nothing to do with, with systems of power and oppression, you know? So that's why I was somewhat floored to read that prominent feminists across the world, such as Judith Butler signed a group letter defending Professor Rennell saying, um, so Diane Davis, who is the chair of the Department of Rhetoric at the University of Texas, Austin, this is a quote from the New York Times, who also signed the letter to the university supporting Professor Rennell, said that she and her colleagues were particularly disturbed that, as they saw it, Mr. Reitman was using Title IX, a feminist tool to take down a feminist. And that, to me, is everything wrong with third-wave feminism. It's tribalism at its finest. Exactly. And everything that the Me Too movement can correct in understanding it's not about gender tribalism. In the same way that I think racial justice should not be about racial tribalism. It should be about correcting wrongs. Not acting like these demographic groups are supposed to all be at war with each other. Well, that's what frustrates me so much about the action of some... The actions of some so-called feminists in that... This is what makes the word feminism so asinine and gives it such a bad taste to so many people is because it's been made it's it's made people think that when someone describes themselves as a feminist that they are man-hating that they are 
only looking out for themselves when really that should not be the case. And at large, for a lot of people who want to see equality, want to see justice for all, that's not the case. But then we have cases like this that completely go to diminish the movement for equality of both genders as a whole. And and that's just so frustrating, especially as a female. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it quickly invalidates movements. And this is this is a comparison I've compared Me Too and said that it it can fall into the, pl- the pitfall that Black Lives Matter fell into. And what I mean by that is, obviously, police violence, and I'm sure something I've never experienced, but feeling like a cop is assuming you're guilty on the basis of your race. I am sure that that is a legitimate experience that is disproportionately experienced by black people. I don't doubt that. Black Lives Matter had the opportunity to revolutionize the way we discuss police brutality, but I think that it fell into the pitfall of becoming purely tribal. So rather than latching on to stories that were extremely credible, there was an obsession with talking about Michael Brown and Hands Up, Don't Shoot, when it seemed fairly credible when you look at the police report that he probably reached for a cop's gun after violently assaulting another minority in a gas station store. You know, so if Me Me Too can fall through the pitfalls, if it continues to try and defend people like Rennell rather than standing up for all victims regardless of gender. You know, I mean, it's... I could go on... We could do an entire episode just on the pitfalls of tribalism and how it ultimately undermines the abilities of people to end discrimination and end disproportionate um, persecution. But I, I I would just urge people to realize that the beauty of Me Too is acknowledging that someone like Ozzy Argento is capable of being an abuser. Yeah, and I hope the random Twitter pundits online and anyone who's writing about this in the media can recognize that as well. Um, on that note, wow, this is just not like a heavy episode, but just there's just so much in the news. And I kind of want to pivot over to talking about two different ICE-related stories. So one sad, one extremely, extremely sad, and one I think is sort of a success story. So the first being that Molly Tibbetts, who has been missing in Iowa, uh, she's a girl from Brooklyn, Iowa, who's been missing for five weeks. She was last seen going on a run, and uh, her body was found today. She was, in fact, killed and today, uh, the Iowa police held a press conference in which they revealed that her killer was, is, uh, I believe it's pronounced Christian Rivera, and he is a 24-year-old illegal immigrant who has been in the country anywhere between four and seven years. So naturally, Trump alluded to this in his rally, although I'm surprised he didn't even say Molly Tibbetts' name. I thought that was a misstep because, on his part. I don't think Because it's less about her for him and more about powering his base on illegal immigration. Which is is a shame because I think that, I mean, I'm no immigration hawk for being as conservative as I am economically, Um, but I think that Trump Trump actually had it right when he said in the debate with Hillary, we want to get rid of all the bad hombres. I think that it's a fairly reasonable position to say everyone who's in school, working, serving our military, even if you're an illegal immigrant, Maybe we just let you stay and we provide a pathway to citizenship, the welfare, pay taxes. He didn't say that. I mean, no, 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 no. He didn't frame it that way. I'm quoting the one line. I mean, like, I'm not saying, like, Trump's actual immigration plan I agreed with during the campaign. Obviously, I did not. But in the idea of get out the bad hombres and let the good hombres stay, I think that there's some validity to that. But how, I mean, 
there was a way of viewing this in which you could say, this is why we need more Trumpism to get rid of people like Rivera, who are violent killers. But there's also the way to look at it and see that Trump has been president for over a year and this guy was still here. So I don't know if there's any good policy proposal to come in, except for the fact that as this story unfolds, I'd be curious to see how how involved in the community Rivera was. Because I doubt that this will be someone who attended local university or had a lot of coworkers who would vouch who would have vouched for his character. And I think it goes to show that there should be a different standard for people who have sponsors, and not even just sponsors in terms of economics, but sponsors in terms of character, people say, oh, I worked with this undocumented person for five years, and they're a really upstanding person, and they have a kid here, and they're contributing to the community, versus someone who is largely living on the periphery of society. I mean, the circumstances of her death are still unclear, but it sounds like he just stalked and chased her. You know, this is not someone who, it sounds like, is living within like the normal confines of society, clearly. I mean, he's a killer. But I, I, I do think that this Trump will, I mean, Trump will likely, and already has shown that he's willing to use it in terms of uh, empowering ICE, but there needs to be a clear policy change, not just slogans, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And first off, obviously, the murder of this girl is devastating, but what is an unfortunate consequence of this in the age of Trump is that this is going to be used to, again, mobilize his base, mobilize people on immigration issues. The person is going to be characterized by the media, who the murderer is going to be characterized as the me- by the media as an illegal immigrant rather than, and more importantly, a deranged person who would murder someone. Because he did not murder this girl because she was an illegal, because he was an illegal immigrant. He murdered this girl because of some mentally deranged psychological factor in his head and so i think that is going to be the story that gets twisted here and is the unfortunate one for a lot of people seeking asylum in this country and for a lot of people seeking proper immigration status who are morally upstanding citizens it's going to be unfortunate for a lot of dreamers if this story continues to gain traction and continues to gain media attention i mean trump has already mentioned it in his west virginia rally that this guy was an illegal immigrant and that's why we need to get illegal immigrants out of this country and that's not necessarily the case because his motivation behind killing was not because he was an illegal immigrant yes you can make the claim that well he shouldn't have been in this country in the first place Sure, but the thing is, regardless of if this wall is built or not, regardless of whatever immigration policies that are completely strict that Trump enforces, there will still always be illegal immigrants in this country. And there will still always be illegal immigrants in this country who are doing great things and are trying to pay their way and are trying to gain legal status and be upstanding citizens in their communities just like there will always be murderers in this country as well and that it doesn't matter where you come from um in terms of pulling the trigger on a gun or in terms of murdering someone and so that's an unfortunate consequence of this specific case here yeah i mean it's funny because before the rally started i think we were talking about the molly tibbetts case and I said he'll probably bring it up. And you were saying, I hope he doesn't because, I, you know, for the reasons you just listed. And I said, no, I hope he does because I think that 
A, it's authentic to Trump, but also that I think it's valid that an incident like this was avoidable. That he didn't name her upset me and made me wish that he didn't even bring it up. Well, yeah, that, because I, I think if it's he funny named how my her, opinion changed. If, he, you if know? he named her, it would have been about her, about how this shouldn't have happened to her. But instead, he made this about illegal immigration, which it is not. And I mean, you can say this was an avoidable thing. There has to be a change. Like, I know that after Kate Steinle was killed, there was Kate's law because they were saying that this is someone who has been deported multiple times. He came back into the country. We don't understand the circumstances around uh, Rivera's immigration status. We don't know if he was deported ever before. Maybe there's no good policy prescription to come out of this. But if there is, and I don't think it would have been inauthentic for Trump to have brought it up, I just hoped it would have been with respect to the victim and with respect to what her life could have been. But instead, I, I dislike and I would hope that in the future, Trump's speechwriters would make sure to include a moment for the victim, not just for the political point like, that he's trying to make. But in good news and as a thank you to Trump, ICE deported uh, Jacu Palish. That's a Polish name. He is a 95-year-old man living in Queens, New York, who served as an armed guard at a Nazi death camp, and he is being deported to Germany, and that is excellent. He was the last suspected uh, Nazi officer to be in the U.S., and sayonara. I hope he enjoys his last few years in the inside of a prison cell having to think long and hard about the evil that he inflicted on this world. America is a better place without that human piece of debris. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you, ICE. I think we just have to end on one success story, and I feel like, I, yeah, I feel like, I feel like I've been sort of harsh on Trump this only, episode. Only silver lining of this week's news story, news stories so far, and it's only Tuesday, guys. Like, yeah, I mean, it's I Tuesday. Think we might pump out two podcasts this week, because yeah, I honestly, think... Yeah, honestly, we probably will. Because, like, by Friday... All of this news is going to take a completely different turn, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, um, I don't know, guys. Keep checking your phones. Keep updating your news feeds. Or maybe don't check your phones. Or or don't, honestly. I think you can even just wait till Friday and and let us tell you the news in maybe a less hostile manner than as it's coming out right now. But uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Tiana the First, at Avery Hogarth. Check out our website, thepoliticalpregame.com. As always, you can contact us through any of those platforms. Let us know your thoughts or any suggestions on future topics we should discuss. And thank you. Thank you.